0: Thirteen, Luke chapter 13. I often don't say this on Sunday mornings, but I am really glad you're here. There's a lot of places you could choose to be on a Sunday morning, but you've chosen to be here in the Lord's house, and I don't take that for granted, and so we are so thankful that you're here this morning. Um, can we bring the house lights all the way up, Roger? Are they all the way up? Or maybe they are, and I just can't see. one of my favorite books of all time and most of you know this is john bunyan's the pilgrim's progress the pilgrim's progress is an allegory of the christian life some people find it a little hard to read because there's characters with weird names but each character in the allegory represents something about the christian journey and so it starts with a man named christian and christian reads his bible and he realizes that there's going to be a day of judgment and so he wants to escape the wrath to come. He knows that there is that final day. And so a man named Evangelist meets him. And Evangelist tells Christian, there's only one way of salvation. You've got to enter through the wicked gate. You've got to go through the wicked gate. There's no other way to go. Go to the wicked gate and you will find salvation and you'll be on your way to the celestial city, which is what is called heaven. And so Christian begins on his journey, and he, he immediately finds he, he's, he's involved in all these different hurdles and complications. He, he gets stuck in the swamp of despond, has to get dragged out. It's, it's representing the trials that come when you begin to think about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And then he meets a man named Mr. Legality. And Mr. Legality says... You don't have to enter through the wicked gate for salvation. Climb up this hill over here called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the way to get to heaven. And so Christian begins to climb Mount Sinai, and it's a representation for the law, how the Ten Commandments cannot save. They can only crush you and show you your need for a Savior. So so Christian's defeated. Christian falls down the mountain, and then evangelist comes to him and says, What happened? I told you to go to the wicked gate. Why have you gotten off the path? And so Christian gets to the wicked gate. And as he gets to the wicked gate, there's a man on the other side named Goodwill. And Christian knocks on the door of the wicked gate. And here's what Christian says. May I enter now? Will he inside open the door to this wretched sinner to me, even though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then I shall not fail to sing his lasting praise on high. Christian admits he's a sinner, admits he's a rebel, and goodwill opens the door of the wicket gate for Christian to enter. Goodwill symbolizes salvation by grace alone, but here's what happens at that final moment when Christian's about to go through the wicket gate from Satan's castle, Apollyon's castle. Demons begin to shoot fiery arrows at Christian to prevent him from entering through the wicked gate. But he gets in, and as he enters the wicket gate, goodwill tells him, you're inside. You're safe. You'll never be cast out. And once again, goodwill reminds Christian, you've come through the wicket gate, the narrow way, the only way, the only door. Many people have tried many times to get through to heaven But you have to come through the wicked gate, the narrow way, the only way. Now, John Bunyan knew his Bible back and forth because that scene in Pilgrim's Progress is exactly what we're going to talk about today in Jesus' words, from the lips of our Savior Jesus. Last week, we asked the question How does God grow His kingdom? It starts out small. And God grows His kingdom organically and secretly and supernaturally. And God does this great work of expanding His kingdom. And so today's question is, okay, how do you get into that kingdom? And the answer is there's only one way to get into the kingdom of God. So, let's read together Luke chapter 13 starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. When he went, and this is Jesus, when he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I want to explore this passage of Scripture from four main teachings, four main parts, four main truths. And here's the first. It's kind of a question we need to kind of back up and ask just to kind of set the stage. Here's the first issue. God is under no obligation to save anyone. God is under no obligation to save anyone. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. If you remember, he's he's headed to Jerusalem. He begins to teach in these villages, in these towns, and a man comes up and asks him a question. He asks the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It's a numbers question. And here's the general consensus of the day. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught this. All Jews are going to go to heaven except for really, really bad people. Gentiles, probably not. But it's just a a given that the Jews are going to go to heaven. And so this man asked the question, what's the number, Jesus? Is it going to be a few? Is it going to be a lot? Who all is going to get saved? Is the number going to be few? And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't answer his question. Jesus doesn't focus on the number of who will be saved. Now, Let's just get this in our minds. Only God sovereignly determines the number of who's going to be saved. It's His prerogative. It's His choice. He doesn't have to save anyone. Let me just remind you what grace is. If God is obligated to give grace, it's no longer grace. If God must give it, if God's obligated to give it, it's not grace. It's something that's owed. And so God's not obligated to give grace. It ceases to be grace if God is obligated to give it. Because Romans nine fifteen and 16 says this, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If anybody's going to be saved, it's not because you can work for it. It's not because you deserve it. It's because God chooses to show you mercy, and he's not obligated to give it to you. It's his choice to do so. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2:8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man may boast. We can't boast. We can't earn salvation. We don't deserve salvation. God's not obligated to give it. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. The guy asks, how many are going to be saved? Is it going to be a few? Jesus doesn't answer the question because that's not the important question. You can speculate all day long how many people are going to be saved, how many people are going to be in heaven. Uh, You can play the numbers game and you can speculate. And Jesus says that's not really the issue. That's not the issue that's pressing right now. The issue is what is your responsibility as a sinner? What's your responsibility? Look at the end of verse 23. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. He doesn't answer the man, but he turns to them, the group. So here's the issue that Jesus is pressing forward. Doesn't really matter what the number is if you're not part of that number. Doesn't matter. You can speculate all day who's going to be saved, but the point is are you part of that number? Are you the one that's going to be saved? So that's truth number one is that God's really not under any obligation to save anybody. He does it by his sheer grace and mercy alone. And we can speculate all day long about who's going to be saved and who's not. And that's a great game to speculate. The point is, are you part of that number? And that leads us to the second issue. The second issue, which is really something that our culture does not want to hear. Jesus is the only, can I say that again? The only way of salvation. Notice what Jesus says about Himself. Now, I'm not saying anything to you that that Jesus doesn't say Himself. I'm just reading to you what Jesus says about Himself. Notice what He says there in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. The narrow door. It's a metaphor for Jesus being the only way to heaven, the only way to have a relationship with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it a little bit differently. Over in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen, Jesus says, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow." And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The gate is narrow. The door is narrow. Jesus refers to himself as the door in John's gospel. Metaphorically speaking, in these images, in the symbolism, in John 10, 7-9. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, In that ancient culture, they had sheep pens. They were either circular or maybe rectangular, but they would have high walls with a lot of vines and stuff so that, number one, it wasn't so much so the sheep could get out. It was so robbers couldn't come in and wolves couldn't come in and steal the sheep. And so you couldn't climb over. If you climbed over, you were trespassing. There was only one way to get into the sheepfold. There was a door. And there was a, a watchman that would stand by the door, and when the shepherd would come, the sheep would be let in. But there was only one way in, one way out. Think about DOC for a moment. Some of you work at DOC. What's, what's it, when you pull up there, what, what's the first thing you see? Tall fences with barbed wire to keep people out. And so the image here is that thieves jump over and people try to get in. There's only one way in, one way out of this sheepfold. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's only one door. It's a a narrow door. It's one door. It's one way. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the way. And then later on in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we live in a very pluralistic culture that does not like to hear that there's only one way of salvation. Sometimes when we hear Jesus' words, people may accuse us of being bigoted or hateful or, or not kind, that we're being narrow-minded, that we're not, being, we're not allowing for all, all different types of paths to God. James Boyce puts it this way, if Jesus had compared himself to a wall, we would have to climb over, and that might be hard work. If he compared himself to a long, dark passageway, we would have to feel our way along it, and some might be afraid to try. But Jesus said he was a door, and a door can be entered easily and instantly, but it must be entered. There's no way going around that. There's a lot of ways today that people try to create their own door. They create their own way. They may try to jump over the fence, they may try to dig through the fence, but they don't go through the door. They create their own way. So what are some ways people try to create their own door to God, or maybe their own door to heaven, or their own door to spiritual significance? Well, some try it through moralism. If I'm just a good person, If I try really hard, if I obey the Ten Commandments, if I keep my nose clean, if I try to be morally good and religious, I will be good enough to earn my way into heaven. That's my door. My door is moralism. My door is being a good person. My door is being religious. That's what some people try. There's another door that people try. Spiritualism. Spiritualism. I may not be part of any organized religion, I may not go to church, I may not even believe in God, but, but I'm a spiritual person. And I'm going to tap into that inner spiritual energy that I have, and, and whatever it is, I'm just going to be sincerely spiritual, and that's going to give me either eternal life, or nirvana, or karma, or something. I'm just going to trust in, the, in, in, the, in being spiritual. That's my door. So some people use moralism, some people spiritualism. Other people, the door they create is activism. I'll give, I'll give myself wholeheartedly to a cause. I'll get involved in social justice. I'll get involved in environmentalism. I'll, I'll be politically active, whether it's on the right or it's on the left. I'm going to give myself to a cause, and, and that cause will give me identity. And if I do enough good with the cause, then I may earn a way to, to, to be good enough to, to get into heaven because I've been active in some type of cause. These are all self-created paths or gates. They're wide. They're not the narrow. And here's the problem. None of these paths take into consideration human sin. The sin problem. Romans 3, 10-12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even though the door is narrow hear me carefully, even though it's narrow, it's still wide enough for the worst of sinners to enter. Even though it's narrow, it's wide enough for the worst of sinners to enter. That means you must confess that you're a sinner, that you need Jesus. The door's wide open to anyone that would confess their need for Jesus. Remember what Paul said about himself? 1 Timothy 1, 15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost, I'm the worst. The door is narrow, but it's wide enough to admit the worst of sinners. Now, there's a confusing statement here that I had to work through and figure out what exactly does Jesus mean? And what does he not mean? Did you catch the beginning of verse 24? What word starts out verse 24? Strive. Do you see that in your Bible? Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, strive, that sounds like a a lot of effort. Is Jesus saying it's salvation by works? Is Jesus saying there's something we have to do? We have to put forth effort? What does it mean to strive? It cannot be salvation by works because the Bible teaches it's by grace alone. So what is Jesus saying here? What does it mean to strive to enter through the narrow gate? Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. When you come under conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're a sinner, you begin to get uncomfortable. You begin to get confronted with your sin. And then I think what he's saying is there's an urgency. There's an urgency to make sure that you trust Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't mess around. Get to it quickly. Hurry up and repent with an urgency. Jesus said in Mark 1, 14-15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. What are you supposed to do? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus has come and he's saying, listen, repent and believe the gospel with an urgency. The time is now. Don't mess around. Don't wait around. There's There's the narrow door. Make sure you enter through the narrow door. Don't try to climb over. Don't try to go all these different paths. Enter now. Hebrews 3.15, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Jesus is saying today. Today is the day to enter through the narrow door. Don't put it off. Don't play games. Get serious about, with an urgency, making sure you've entered through the door. The only door. The only way. Jesus Christ himself. So the first truth we've seen is that God's not obligated to save anybody, but he does by sheer grace. Number two, Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the door. He's the narrow door. Enter through the door. But here's the third truth, and this is the scary one. But we've got to deal with what Jesus says. It's very plain. Here's truth number three. Many, will be cast into eternal hell who did not enter the narrow door. Many. Look at verse 24. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many. And then Jesus tells a parable about this master of the house and the master of the house represents Jesus, and he gets up and he, he shuts the door. The door shut. The end of the age has come. There's no longer another opportunity. The door shut. The opportunity has been closed. And what happens? People come and they knock. They say, let us in, let us in. And what does Jesus the master say? I don't know where you came from. Who are you people? Banging again. Jesus, let us in, let us in. I do not know who you are. And what's their excuse? They give a reason, right? Well, we ate with you. And we drank with you. And we even heard you teach in our streets. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We ate with you. We drank with you. We heard you teach. Well, they had a familiarity with Jesus. They sat and ate a meal with Jesus. They even heard a sermon from Jesus. But they were not saved. Close proximity and familiarity with Jesus is not the same as saving faith. See, here's the thing. They never placed their trust in Jesus alone to save them. They heard about Him. They heard Him. They hung out with Him. They were close enough to kind of check Him out. But they never entered the door. They never placed their faith in Christ. It was not a personal relationship with Jesus. It was merely just this association, this familiarity, this closeness. And Jesus is addressing this to people who think they are saved. But they never did enter through the door of salvation. And you hear those words. Those shocking words from Jesus. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Matthew's gospel, depart from me, I never knew you. The door's shut. Go home. You're not allowed entrance into heaven. It's too late. I don't know you. You're not in a right relationship with me. Now, if striving to enter through the narrow gate means to hurry up and repent with an urgency, let's ask the question, why do some people not enter? through the narrow gate. People that have heard the gospel, people that have been exposed, why do some people just not enter, not trust Jesus? Well, let me give you some reasons, I think, why some people don't. Number one, presumption. Presumption. I'm good with God. I'm good. I go to church, I'm good. Me and God, we're good. They presume they're saved even though they never entered the gate. It's presumption. I'm good. I don't need a Savior. Another one, I think, is procrastination. I'll wait another time. I have other things to think about today. I'll put it off. That was an interesting message. That was an interesting thing you said, Jesus. But I've got other things on my mind. I'll get to it later. Let me just put it off. Till later. It's not that big of a deal. For other people, it's pride. I'm not going to admit I'm a sinner. I don't need Jesus. I'm not going to bow to him as Lord. I've got things worked out in my own life. I want to be in charge. I don't want to submit to him as Lord. That means I've got to humble myself, and I don't want to do that. It means I've got to admit I'm a sinner. I don't want to do that. I'm too prideful. And because I'm a preacher and I had to find another P word to make alliteration, this may not be theologically accurate or not not grammatically accurate. The last one is passionlessness, okay? <laughs> passionlessness. I couldn't say lack of passion because it wouldn't start with the P, but I think it, what it means is this. There are just some people that say, I could care less. I'm ambivalent. That's good for you. It may work for you, but I could care less. It doesn't float my boat. It's not on my radar screen. Thank you very much. I don't care about all this Jesus and God stuff, but Jesus's point was for many it will be too late. The door will be shut, and it will be too late. And Jesus has already referenced this. Back in Luke chapter 12, remember he said, settle your accounts quickly before you're thrown into prison because you owe a debt. He talked about the fig tree. We looked at it a few weeks ago. If the fig tree doesn't produce fruit, it will be cut out and thrown into the fire. In Matthew's version, he said the, the, the road is wide, and that wide road leads to destruction. The word destruction in the original language means hell. Suffering God's wrath in, in hell. And notice what Jesus says in verse 28 Hmm. In that place. What place, Jesus? Being shut outside of heaven. Hell. In that place, there'll be two things. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. Have you ever thought about hell as a place of weeping? Bitter tears of remorse. Eternal hopelessness. Eternal regret. Eternal tears. What's gnashing of teeth? That seething rage. Rage frenzied anger. In hell, there is bitter anger and tears. And gnashing of teeth. It's a place of outer darkness. Matthew twenty two thirteen. The king will say to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of verse 28, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the peoples in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. Shut out. The door to heaven will be eternally closed. Do you remember Noah's ark? Noah and the flood? After Noah got all the animals into the ark, and Noah got his family into the ark. Who shut the door to the ark? God shut the door. They were safe in the ark. They were safe in salvation. God shut the door, and what happened to the rest of the world? They were judged by a flood. Genesis 7, 16, those who entered, male and female of all flesh, went in, and God commanded them, and the Lord shut him we begin the sermon talking about the Pilgrim's Progress. But there's another character in Pilgrim's Progress, and this is the very last scene of the book. There's a character named Ignorance. Ignorance. And Ignorance and Christian end up on the path together, and they start talking about their experience, and Christian asks Ignorance, did you enter through the wicked gate? Ignorance says, I didn't know there was a wicked gate. I just kind of got on the path. And Christian said, you didn't enter through the wicked gate? Did you not get a certificate when you came through the wicked gate? You can't get led into the celestial city unless you've entered through the wicked gate. And then he says, it doesn't matter how you get in. You don't have to go through the wicked gate. There's many different ways. I'm just going to kind of follow you guys along here. and," And it gets to the end. Christian dies. He's taken across the river. And he's welcomed into the celestial city. He's welcomed to the gates of heaven. The angels let him in. Ignorance gets to the celestial city, and he wants to be let in. And the men on the other side of the door say, "Why should we let you in? Why? why are you here?" And listen, in the book, this is ignorance's answer. Okay, this is this is exactly what ignorance says: "I have eaten and and I've eaten and drunk in the presence of the king, and he has taught in our streets." You see it right here. Well, the men behind the gate ask for their certificate. Do you have a certificate that shows that you came through the wicked gate? Ignorance fumbles around and and looks it, and he has none. And so the angels say to bind him hand and foot. And the very last scene of Pilgrim's Progress is ignorance being cast into hell. And here's the very last line of of, of the book, the final sentence of the Pilgrim's Progress. Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. So I awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Ignorance lived up to his name. He didn't enter through the wicked gate. And he thought all along, when he got to the doors of heaven, he'd be let in. And he knocked and he knocked, and instead of being let in, he was cast into outer darkness. So we've seen three truths this morning in this passage of Scripture. Number one, God's under no obligation to save us, but He does by His mercy alone. Number two, Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the door. Number three, if you don't enter the door, you'll be cast into hell. But there is hope in the fourth thing that we see here. The fourth truth we see, and it's it's right here, a massive multitude from all nations will enjoy heaven with Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't answer the question. What's the guy's question? How many will be saved? Does Jesus answer the question? He says, no, I'm going to, it's not, the issue's not how many, the issue's are you going through the narrow gate. But notice what Jesus says to him. At the end of this parable, in verse 28, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. In other words, all the old, that's representative of all the Old Testament believers being in heaven because they had trust in the coming Messiah. They had trust in the Lord. They will be in heaven because of their faith. Old Testament believers. But we know that salvation is not just for the Jew. It's also for the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So where do you see the Gentiles here? Look at verse 29. People will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. North, south, east, and west, that's metaphorical language for the nations. If you go, especially go back to Isaiah, you find out that the nations, the Gentiles from the north, south, east, and west are going to come to Zion. They're going to come to heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't answer the question, how many will be saved? But there's one place in the Bible I can tell you the number. There is one place where you'll know the number. Revelation 7, 9. And this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That's the number. You want to know the number? A great multitude that no one can number. It means millions upon millions, a huge, massive multitude. From where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And where are they? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of heaven, that, that final vision that Jesus has here of the many... The multitudes, the great multitudes of that that no man could number standing before Jesus in heaven, before the Lamb from all tribes, tongues, and people. Jesus tells us who will be in heaven. Old Testament believers, Gentile believers, all those who have entered through the narrow door. It will be a massive number that no man can count millions upon millions, multitudes upon multitudes, but he tells us what we will be doing in heaven. Not only who will be there, but what we'll be doing. And maybe he didn't quite catch it. He thought, what in the world does this mean? Look at the end of verse 29. We will recline at the table. Okay. We get to go to heaven and sit at a table. Ooh, that sounds exciting. What in the world is this about? This is the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. To recline at the table is an image of joy, of festivity, of intimacy. In that ancient Hebrew culture, to sit at somebody's table was the height of fellowship, the height of intimacy. So the picture here is that those who are going to be in heaven, we will be at the very table with Jesus eternally in joyful intimacy. And fellowship with our Lord forever and ever and ever. Reclining at His table. Immediate, intimate joy. I can't help but contrast heaven and hell. How does Jesus contrast them in this passage? Hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of bitterness and torment and sorrow and anger and rage and regret. Heaven, on the other hand, is a place of joy, of fellowship, of freedom, of forgiveness, of intimacy with Jesus, our Savior. In verse 30, Jesus specifically addresses the Jews who thought they were first in line because they were automatically the Jews. Hey, we're automatically going to be saved. We're automatically going to get in heaven. It doesn't matter if we enter through the narrow gate. We're Jewish people. We're Israelites. We're in. And Jesus says, not so fast. Those that think they're first are actually going to be last. And who are the last that will be first? Well, the last could be any Gentile or any non-Jew or really anybody who admits they're a sinner and trusts in Christ and enters through the narrow door. They'll be first. So it doesn't matter, Jesus says, whether you're Jewish or Israelite. The issue is, have you gone through the door of salvation? God is under no obligation to save anybody, but He does by His grace. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Many will be shut out on that final day because they've not gone through the narrow door. But millions upon millions, a multitude that no one can count, will be in heaven enjoying The marriage supper of the Lamb reclining at the table with Jesus. So the most important question for you is this. Have you entered through the door? Will you be part of the many who will be shut out because it's too late? You see, the problem is not God. The problem is not the door. The problem is you and me. We're sinners. And as the master of heaven, God has every right to make his own door. God has every right to say, there's one door, and I'm making the door, and it's Jesus. So the problem's not God. The problem's not heaven. The problem's not the door. The problem's not Jesus. The problem is is you and me. But God is merciful enough to say, listen, I've provided a door, and it's wide open to all who would go through it. You need to go through the door. Here's the thing to think about. The door is not narrow to keep us out. It's open so that we can come through by grace. So will you be among that great multitude that has entered through the narrow door of Jesus and you're experiencing the joy of your salvation forever and ever in heaven? Or will you be the many that put it off And on that final day, the door shut. And you go to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's my prayer as your pastor. My prayer is that nobody leaves this place today without nailing down, have I gone through the door? Have I trusted in Jesus? Have I accepted Him as my Lord and Savior? Have I confessed my sin? Do I know when I walk out that door, the physical door, that I've walked through the door of salvation and I will have a home in heaven? That's the ultimate question that every single one of us is faced with. Have you walked through the narrow door of Jesus as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and ask that question. This is a time for you to evaluate your heart. I can't look into your heart. Only God knows your heart. But this is an opportunity for you to pray And to nail it down and to make sure that as you leave this place you have a relationship with Jesus. You've gone through the narrow door of salvation. Would you spend a few moments in silent prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are a God who saves. You did not have to save us. You were under no obligation to save us, but because of your grace, you provided a way. Through Jesus, the only way. Jesus, we're thankful that you are the door. We're thankful that you're the narrow way. We're thankful you're the only way. We we don't want to try to get in any other way besides through you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord Jesus, we know that as we enter that door of salvation, what awaits us is a joyous, eternal heaven in your presence forever. With unending joy and hope and freedom and forgiveness and love. But Lord, for the, those that die in their sins and never enter through salvation, there's, there's hell. place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Lord, we don't want anybody to experience hell. So today is the day of salvation. Drive to enter the narrow gate. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and my prayer is if there's anybody here today that's not done that, today would be their day of salvation. They would walk out this place knowing for certain that they have a relationship with you and they're going to heaven. Their sins have been forgiven. Help us to rejoice that our sins have been forgiven. Help us to rejoice, Jesus, that you've prepared a place for us in heaven and you'll come back and bring us to that place you prepared for us so that we can recline with you at the table forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great king and actually being our host. (laughs) We are your people, the sheep of your pastor. Thank you for being our great shepherd. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.